Hi, it's Stephen from I Know The Face here. Before the episode, I just wanted to tell listeners to make sure to stick around after Andrew and I's character actor talk for an interview I conducted with Sebastian Lelio, who directed the new Irish set mystery drama, The Wonder. Enjoy the episode. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses' work of character actors. I'm Stephen Porzio. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we are talking about Boss Tanaka himself, June Kunimura. Andrew, run down his history. June Kunimura was born in Yatsuhiro, Japan in 1955. After a move to Osaka, he fell in love with acting and graduated from a drama course with the Osaka Broadcasting Company. His first film was a Japanese disaster film, Tidal Wave, in 1973. His Hollywood debut was the 1989 Ridley Scott film Black Rain with Michael Douglas that gave Kunimura his first Hollywood role and the opportunity to act alongside his mentor, Yusaku Matsuda. His mentor, Andy Garcia. Yeah. (laughs) He spent much of the night. That would be a real achievement. I think he's older. No one's ever looked cooler than Andy Garcia in Black Rain. That's, that movie's a banger. That's a fair point. It's, it is really good. Yeah. Um, I'd argue that Ken Takakura looks cooler than Actually, almost yeah. anyone alive or dead. Very cool. Very, very um, true. Very cool. Very true. Yeah. He spent much of the 90s appearing in Hong Kong films like John, John Woo's Hard Boiled, 1994's Treasure Hunt, and 1996's Somebody Up There Likes Me. His collaborations with the pro- prolific provocateur Takeshi Miike in 1999's Audition and 2001's Ichi the Killer brought him to wider attention, specifically that of Quentin Tarantino, who cast him as the beheaded boss Tanaka in his Kill Bill films. Despite his adaptability across national borders and language barriers, Kunimura stuck close to home throughout the 2000s, appearing in more and more popular fare like Godzilla, Final Wars, a remake of Tidal Wave, Here Comes the Bride, My Mom, <laughs> the 2013 Japanese remake of Unforgiven, and Hideki Anno's Shin Godzilla. In 2016, he appeared as the Japanese man in Na Hong Jin's Korean horror epic, The Wailing, for which he won Best Supporting Actor and Popular Star Awards at the Blue Dragon Awards, becoming the first non-Korean to do so. Over the last few years, he has reunited with John Woo in Manhunt, appeared in Roland Emmerich's Midway, and acted opposite Mary Elizabeth Winstead in Netflix's Kate. Yeah, um, to be honest, I have a confession to make. When you first pitched covering Kunimura on the podcast, um, didn't really know who you were talking about. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, it's the first time that's happened. I know, really. I guarantee you that. But um, In three years. You highlighted that he was in The Wailing, a movie I love, um, where he have, obviously has this major role playing this enigmatic, possibly villainous figure. And I, I remembered him being um, unforgettable. Terrifying. In that, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, giving him a quick Google, I realized, oh, he's the Yakuza who gets his head decapitated by Lucy Liu in that amazing scene in Kill Bill. Mm. Um, so those roles automatically make him worth uh, covering to me on the show. And that was even before I looked deeper into his very impressive career, which is, you know, seen him work with some of Asia and the world's most high-profile directors. I mean, you mentioned... Um, John Woo. Yeah, John Woo, like Ridley Scott and like Quentin Tarantino, but also people yeah. in Asia, you know, like uh, Takeshi Kitano, Takeshi Miike, Hayao Miyazaki, yeah. Hirokazu, Koreeda, Hideo Nakata. And... Um, it's just crazy that he, he it seemed like he was appearing in big movies by big filmmakers from the start of his career, mm, you know, yeah. like with these bit parts in Hard Boil and Black Rain. Um, and he also like he's great to cover in that he has a lot of cool genre films, which makes him um, cool in my eyes, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know worth covering. On yeah, this podcast. A, 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 like yeah. an interesting, diverse yeah. filmography. Yeah. Um, but also what I noticed about him, the and, unbearable lightness of being you will not find here. <laughs> I kind of like that movie. Yeah, it's okay. um, what I noticed and love about him having watched four of his films in quick succession though is that like he's got this great distinct craggy face um, with these like 
deep eyes and like sharp cheekbones and I think those qualities are part of why he's so commanding on screen not only do they give him this uh, natural intensity but because like no other actor really looks like Kunimura like the viewer's gaze is just naturally drawn to him when he's on screen mm. even when he's saying nothing at all as is the case in like multiple scenes in The Wailing but I also think his gift of being able to draw viewers in is often juxtaposed with the characters he plays who in the movies I watch for this at least are all quite like inexpressive and quiet and hard to get a read on mm, yeah. you know like in The Wailing the whole movie is spent trying to work out is his character a human or a demon yeah. um, for large stretches of the crime thriller Outrage um, which I watch for this um, he plays and he plays in that movie like an older Yakuza leader and a big question of the movie is like is this guy really as powerful as he first appears to be and I would even say to a lesser extent he, with his characters in the movies Audition and Manhunt you are wondering when you see him for the first couple of times, like, can I trust this guy? Like, is he on the level? Um, so I find that um, that blend of Kunimura's natural gravitas and the impenetrability of some of his characters very compelling. Yeah. You know, you always want to know more about the people he plays. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just find him... Um I think he's. I think he brings, like, a certain humanity to everyone. Like, you can tell there's, some, there's always something there. He's not like a... Like, even in um, Hard Boiled... He has a very small, like an extended cameo. Plays, where he plays tea house gunman. Yeah, tea house gunman. Um, at the start in the, and he has a, his death basically happens when uh, Chow Yun Fat dives and like pins a pistol to his head and shoots him. And in that moment, you can see his eyes just go, oh shit, and mm. like I don't know. There's like there's a there's so much humanity in his face that even in minor roles, you're like, oh this guy, this guy like created a living person, even if it's just for a scene or a second. And I was thought I thought he was like quite a brave actor without an ego, I think, because like to do um, to play a role as kind of evil and irredeemable as that of the Japanese man in The Wailing is like quite a feat to do it in your own country, but an even bigger feat to do it in a foreign country that especially one with relations as bad as Korea has with Japan or mm, has had absolutely. over the last 70 years. Yeah, because it's a very compelling role but mm. you know from a Japanese perspective it's definitely like unflattering he's literally Absolutely, called yeah. the Japanese man or the Japanese stranger yeah, both credits yeah, yeah. Um, but obviously he was just like the movie is good though yeah yeah okay. absolutely this yeah. is the role of a lifetime <laughs> you know to, to, you, know, you yeah. did win awards but, yeah. you know um, do you want to kick off by talking about uh, another brave choice of a movie he's in um, Audition sure yeah yeah um, do you have a plot I do yeah documentary producer Shigeharu Aoyama played by Ryohei Ishibashi, is a widower of seven years. Spurred on by his teenage son, he agrees to try and find a new wife. With the help of his film producer friend Yasuhisha uh, Yoshikawa, played by Jun Kunimura, uh, they hold a secret audition within, within a real audition in order to find a suitable candidate. Shigeharu becomes obsessed with the shy but beautiful Asami Yamazaki, uh, played by Eihei Shina. Um, mysterious though she may seem, what Ryohei doesn't know may kill him. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, Kunimura kind of gets the ideal role in this story yeah pretty much uh, the, be- the best friend who never has to worry about the deadly secrets a woman he's auditioning may have hidden um, and it's kind of one of several films in the mid to late 90s such as Cure Pulse and Ringu that would later fall under the banner of J-Horror and feature themes of like national anxiety technology meeting tradition and the disconnection fostered by the former two and you know it would spawn a wave of remakes in, in America like Gore Verbinski's The Ring Dark Water The Grudge on all of those on all of their sequels mm. but Audition never got that remake the audition. it shouldn't <laughs> the closest thing is Piercing which is another Ryu Murakami based yeah. on another Ryu Murakami book and is sort of about another like disturbing relationship between a man and a woman but yeah. it's, and I think it is trying to like really mirror Audition but it's it's obviously a different story yeah um, 
yeah, I love this. Um, this was a first time watch for me. To be honest, I was slightly dreading watching it because it's it's an infamous movie in terms mm. of its violence. Um, you often see it on listicles like the ten most messed up movies of all time, yeah. and you know it's plenty of extreme movies I believe are great, but um, I don't really like gratuitous violence. And I th- I think if a movie is going to go there and like depict acts of extreme violence, you want those acts to actually be integral to the movie story and or an extension of. The movie's themes are what the filmmaker is trying to say. Yeah. And uh, not only do I think that the Vance in audition is fundamental to its story, um, it actually wasn't as quite as extreme as I thought it would be. Um, like, obviously, the last act of audition is incredibly yeah. disturbing yeah. and bloody. But I do think a lot of the reason why it shocks people is both down to the performances, you know, the helplessness of the character mm. being tortured combined with the obvious and unsettling to the viewer glee of the person Doing inflicting the, the pain. Yeah. Um, and also, I think it shocks people because of how tame the first two thirds or three quarters of the film is in comparison to its climax. Yeah. Because like prior to the last act, like the film reminded me most of Vertigo, that yeah, Alfred Hitchcock movie, because yeah. it's like this lonely older man who becomes obsessed with a woman because he falls in love with the idea of her he has in his head. Yeah. And it's that obsession that blinds him to these obvious red flags. And um, yeah, the but the finale of the movie is him being uh, punished for that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also, well, I was wondering, what do you agree with this? Like, I, I actually think this movie is also like a sly satire of um, a brand of romance movies where the male lead character does immoral things in an attempt to get close to and seduce a woman and it's presented as being charming. Like, it's like a trope of the genre. Mm. And I think the audition process in audition in which the lead character, Iwama, at the urging... Great, with, great scene or a sequence. A great sequence. Yeah. Um, Have you seen a film by Tarkovsky? Yeah, the Tarkovsky line's <laughs> incredible. Um, yeah, but he's doing this audition process and audition. Um, and with the help of this, his film producer friend, um, Yashikawa, who's played by Junko Nomura, they're auditioning women to be his wife with women showing up under the pretense that they're auditioning for a movie, which, like... Yoshikawa sort of acts like the movie is real, but it, it's very quickly dropped. Yeah. Like, I don't think he ever thought that movie was going to be made. Yeah, and I, like that kind of feel, that premise feels like something out of a screwball romantic comedy. But when you think about it just a little bit deeper, it's a really cruel and sleazy thing to do, yeah. like to waste yeah. a person's time like that to deceive them. And I think the movies invite you to consider that. Like, there's that that great scene, that long montage of the women being interviewed and set to fun music. And like, um, director Takeshi Mike is cutting between the women being interviewed and the questions being asked of them for comedy's sake, you know the ones you mentioned there. Yeah. Um, and it could be put out of romantic comedy, except Mika includes like Yoshikawa asking, you know, some more like inappropriate questions. And we see he, he makes some of the women strip. Mm. And to me, it feels a bit like Mika being like, why do we like this behavior? You know? <laughs> and um, it's slight spoilers. Although I have to say like, it is hard to spoil this movie. In fact, I would say it's poster is a bit of a spoiler and mm. you know, it's going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a certain direction, but um, but what Aoyama suffers at the end of the movie, you know, is obviously a lot worse than anything he does to anybody in it. Mm. But in a sly way, it feels a bit like what he goes through is Mike trying to correct the scales a little bit yeah, <laughs> after decades yeah, of male characters enough. getting away with shady stuff in movies. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think I agree. Yeah, um, don't know if it was the intention, but uh, I think it's certainly a good read of it. Yeah, mm. yeah, um, yeah. I I, I think I just think he, it's kind of interesting in that um. Yoshikawa is kind of the more overtly, you know, misogynistic and mm. he's like an old he's like an older working professional stuck in his conservative ways with like a negative attitude to, and a film producer to young is... people, women and change. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, especially in in film production where it's like, oh, you need to have a good attitude to change because things can change very, very quickly. Um, and he obviously represents like a more um, obvious and 
crude face of the like ingrained patriarchal attitudes attitudes that refused to reckon with a more like open liberalized future that was happening in 1999 and it, it, it that said it is kind of funny where um he's he's like the one that knows something is kind of wrong yeah, yeah. he's like he, like there's moments where he's like i can't put my finger on it but something's wrong with her or like a nice girl like that falls bang into our little scheme i don't believe it it's almost like he he's so cynical himself that he can spot yeah, yeah. Another someone, person yeah. pulling like a grift that he would pull. Yeah, like he might be a diet in the wool misogynist, but he's right in this case for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Um, and I, what I only noticed, this is my third time watching it. Um, and what I only noticed this time is that the film basically shifts on its axis once uh, Shigehara starts invest digging deeper into Asami's past. Like it goes from a pretty spare and queasy kind of maybe anti-romance drama um, or anti-romantic drama to the kind of film Miki would become best known for which is a lurid unsettling and very spiky horror and um, you know the colours are more satur- either more saturated or washed out camera angles and movement are more extreme yes that scene where he the last time we see Junkunamura in the movie the way that scene is shot is so strange like mm. it keeps it, it does that thing where it crosses the line a bunch yeah and yeah. It, you feel it yeah. it's, it it just feels edgy for some reason yeah or where um, Aoyama meets the um owner of the business next to the bar where, where he's uh, looking Asami up the works. steps he's looking up the steps at him and everything is like at a, at a Dutch angle yeah. and the it's re- really like ugly neon yellow and obviously he the mo- the characters he meets after he starts investigating her are more insane like the, the bartender's really weird and then there's the guy in the ballet school and so on and so forth and obviously this movie this movie this movie was for those who don't know was it like a big inspiration for Hostel directed by Eli Roth and, you know, the Soska sisters and and other people who would go on to make more extreme horror movies as the decade went on. Um, but I think what where Audition succeeds is that it front-ends its more substantial dramatic material and leaves its horror as kind of a slow build before an explosive dream sequences that re- recontextualizes everything that came before. And maybe it's more sus- substance than is truly necessary for the kind of film it ends up being or becoming um, but it's good that it's there because a lot of viewers find it hard to look past the violence of its copycats that begins early on and then never really stops yeah I find this movie is very sad yeah and emotional yeah. Well, I think that more than the shocking kind of finale yeah, you know? yeah. and I feel like that is more of a expression of kind of the feelings that have been bubbling under the surface in the pre-part of the movie I think it actually holds together really really well Yeah, yeah like a very elegant true. movie mm, absolutely yeah um, yeah and Kunimura I'd argue his character in Audition is a almost more of an instrument to push the plot forward than a fully rounded character yeah, because like yeah, his, his function is to kind of set up the audition for Aoyama as well as you know, as you mentioned being the first to distrust Sami Yamasaki the, the woman who Aoyama falls in love with from the audition and then once, literally once he does that he's like bye bye yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have yeah, been yeah. June Kanamura see you later yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it's literally we're not friends anymore goodbye yeah yeah and all that I do think yeah there is some interesting kind of character performance details that makes Kanamura stand out here um yeah, just that you, you mentioned being misogynist. Um, that scene where Kunimura's character, Yoshikawa, is in the bar at the beginning of the movie yeah, yeah. with Aoyama and there's a table of women near them like laughing and having mm. fun and not Awf- hurting anybody. Awful girls. Yeah, he says... Common, full all, of themselves. And stupid, all yeah. of them. You, and he says, um, where are all the nice ones? Japan is finished. Yeah. And you're like, my God, that's mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems like you're going through something. Yeah, um, yeah. And then bad the, divorce probably there's his whole monologue about actresses you know the bit where Aoyama asks Yashikawa like if he's supposed to marry the lead girl in this of this hypothetical movie mm. and he says back oh no a, a girl of that talent wouldn't marry you um, she wouldn't be the marrying type 
and he's pressed on it and he's like she wouldn't be happy unhappy with you and unhappy girls have more to express as actresses like he's always making these sort of like putting women in these boxes and making like yeah, generalizations yeah. about them and you just get the vibe he doesn't really respect women of the opposite mm. sex and um, but I think what's savvy about the performance is that when Kunamura's film producer character is making these remarks he plays it as, the, as if he thinks that the character thinks he's saying something very wise yeah yeah um, and also I think during the audition scene I mentioned Kunamura projects this sort of cool confident air as if his character Yoshikawa knows like you know he can act this way and get away with it and um, he does <laughs> which is um, you know scary and um, I wonder if that maybe is Mika and his screenwriter commenting on kind of like the more negative side of the film industry yeah maybe um, so that said too like, I also do think Kunamura sells that Yoshikawa at the same time really cares for Iwama like there's that part when he it's not the, it's, I think it's the second last time he's in the movie where um, he warns Iwama to be careful not to fall in love too fast yeah. um, with his crush um, because Yoshikawa notices he's he's distrustful of her just like in the room and then when he kind of follows up on like the details she provided he notices some inconsistencies yeah. um, and um, he says to Iwama like promise me one thing don't ring her for a while you know maybe, maybe I'm wrong about her but this is your life it's best not to be too hasty and I think it's an oddly sweet moment yeah, um, yeah. and sincere for the character even um especially after what we've seen him say and do before you yeah. know um, yeah. so he, I think he definitely does like stand out even with kind of limited material absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Um, you watched Itchy the Killer as I did, well yeah um, that was where I was like if I was I was queasy about maybe watching Audition oh I'm not sure if I'm ready for it I didn't mm. think I was ready for Itchy um, yeah um, it seems a lot more extreme it is yeah yeah um, so after a Yakuza boss is murdered and his body disposed of his sadomasochist enforcer Kakihara, played by Tadanobu Asano, goes on the warpath, causing trouble for his gang, himself, rival Yakuza leader Funaki, played by Jun Kunimura, and the cops. Behind it all are the unassuming men named Gigi, played by Shinya Sukumoto, and Ichi, played by Nao Omori. The killer he controls through psychosexual means. Um, yeah, so where Audition has class, Ichi the killer has swag. Um... <laughs> And Ichi is all about the blood and guts from the get-go. It rarely pulls his punches and spills a lot of bodily, bodily fluids in the in the process. A lot more than blood, I will say. Um, go. This is this is your warning to go in prepared if you do want to watch it after this. Um, and I think Takeshi Miike is kind of known for masterpieces like Audition, but films like Ichi the Killer are more of his bread and butter, and also seem like kind of stuff he's most comfortable doing somehow. Um, like he's very proficient at. And very prolific as well. He's directed more than 100 movies at this in, a, in under 30 years, I guess. Yeah, and he's known for these extreme horror movies, but also gangland dramas, martial arts movies. Yeah. Like, I think 13 Assassins is one of the most acclaimed action movies in the last, like, 20 years. Yeah, you yeah. know, They made a head of stuff's list. But then he also makes, like, very... Um, he makes all kids' movies and stuff. Yeah. And it's, like, it's, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's mad. Yeah, like... I don't know. It's like either is this guy an auteur or is he just like maybe the best journeyman in the world, maybe one of the best journeyman in the world has ever known. I just think he makes so many movies, at, like as a journeyman. Yeah, I mean, but you're, he, you're he, throwing he'll have, shit at the wall. Eventually, something will stick. And he has his like passion projects. Because <laughs> yeah, I know yeah. he made like three movies the year audition came out. And I read reviews of the other ones, and they're they're all like seems like he was putting more effort into audition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, and the, b- b- with that said, Miki's regular like funhouse kind of gangster dramas are a lot le- are a little less complex, and they're plotting like they all have f- fun stuff, like the guy dressed as the frog doing like Bruce Lee backflips oh, as the background explodes behind him and stuff like that. I won't be talking about this for very long because Kunimura's role is pretty one note, but man, what a note it is! <laughs> um, so 
the main enforcer, Ichi's kind of rival, I guess, Kakihara, who's like the sadomasochist who has like a, who's basically carved a Joker smile into his face that he holds together with piercings at the sides of his mouth and has like dyed blonde hair and lots of piercings and stuff and uh, loves inflicting pain and having pain inflicted upon him. Um, he basically he tortures this guy in this in Hellraiser fashion, essentially. If uh, anyone remembers the ending of Hellraiser, your man has all the hooks stuck into him. Uh, there's boiling oil involved as well. Um, Jesus wept. <laughs> um, but it's something he shouldn't have done because that guy's a lieutenant for Funaki, who's Kunimura's character. And so as punishment, Kakihara slices off the part of his tongue that can taste sweet things because he really likes desserts and hands it to Funaki. And then he gets a call um, in that scene. This is, this is basically the only scene um, Kunimura is in. And he gets a call as he's like, <laughs> and spitting blood everywhere all over the office. So he leaves basically um, to go to the hospital, first of all, and to like go to whoever called him. And the minute the door closes, like the Funaki's, Funaki's boss collapses and vomits, and uh, everyone in the in the all the other low level yakas are like, boss, 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 boss. And then Kunimura is like sitting really coolly on the table. He's got one leg up. He's wearing leather trousers and a leather blazer. And he's still holding the tip of his tongue. And he goes, ah! <laughs> and throws it across the room. Yeah, and apparently it was good enough for Quentin Tarantino to hire him. Yeah, I saw this in... Um, there was uh, some article about Kunimura, like a profile of him on a blog. Yeah, Eyes, wide, like, Eyes Wide East. I think it was that, I yeah. The same, yeah. Um, and apparently uh, Quentin Tarantino loved to scream so much in Ichi the Killer. That's why he got the Bostonaka role in Kill Bill, yeah. which yeah. is uh, cool. Yeah, right? it is, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in fairness, like there are no small parts. No, that, no, just small actors. Yeah, uh, which anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, like in fairness, each of the killer like pushed boundaries and showed how far Japanese cinema could and would go in like, and was going to continue to go in like a post and cinema in general would go in a post kind of nine eleven world, uh, even though it only came out like three days after nine eleven. Um, and I think it and Audition were like a major influence on kind of horror or extreme kind of action cinema throughout the 2000s. And like the torture porn subgenre isn't something I'm a big fan of necessarily, but it often kind of just becomes from the era it's in, it often feels like an exorcism or excision of a particular fury at that point in time. And like young directors like Eli Roth or um, James Wanley Winnell, uh, unsure where to kind of direct their rage at the world as it is. Usually it was usually the directors are uh, young, nubile American adults. Uh, <laughs> just their influences had done, like Wes Craven had done it uh, during the Vietnam War, Reaganomics, and then the Gulf War, and eventually consistent violence like uh, like that in the Hostel or Saw films has the same effect as shock therapy, in that eventually you're desensitized to it, but in like a really negative way. Because mm. I, I I've never seen a Jill Killer so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I've seen like arguments that the movie, despite its hyperviolence, is actually a very savage commentary against violence because like Itchy is being manipulated into committing all these crimes. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. It sounded a bit like Clockwork Orange or something to me. Yeah, you know? I guess that's uh, part of the idea. But I don't know. I think I think he's enjoying just, it too much. No, it's not even that. I just think it's a kind of a weak argument because mm. this film like. It really luxuriates in it, like they like they go to this go to go to the stretch of like including some like not great CGI where like he cuts a man in half from like the crown of his head through to, down to his crotch and he's like kind of splits in half that way and then there's lots of like 
trigger warning, um, sexual violence and stuff okay. like that as well. So it, uh, that's I feel I feel like that's it's probably the best argument you could make, but I think it's still a weak argument. Okay, yeah. no, just thought of bringing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were right too, Stephen. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> no one can say I don't do my research. <laughs> As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. The award-winning Spice Bags podcast is back with season four. You can expect the same mix of staple chats with me, Dee Laffin, Blanca Valencia, and Mei Chin, and deep dives into countries' cuisines, conversations with people from the international community of food in Ireland. Look forward to listening to episodes about shopping, about cakes, Argentina, Nigeria, plus an episode to celebrate the launch of our cookbook, Blast Books Soup. So tune in to us wherever you access your podcasts or Headstuff Podcasts I know that Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Am I going to talk about Outrage? Cool. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. I haven't seen this. This is great. I have seen Violent Cop. Violent Cop is great, too. Violent Cop is um, really good. That's the only um, beat Takeshi film I've seen, though. Hannah B is my favorite. I've only, there's only a couple I've seen. Mm. Um, yeah, so this is a 2010 crime thriller uh, directed uh, by and featuring, amongst its ensemble cast, uh, Takeshi Kitano. Um, Kunimura in it plays um, a Yakuza leader uh, named Ikamoto whose gang is part of a huge organised crime syndicate and the movie begins with the syndicate taking Ikamoto aside and telling him that they are not happy with Ikamoto's relationship with another Yakuza leader named Murasi. Basically Ikamoto and Murasi were rivals but became unexpected friends in prison together but because Morassi's gang is not in the syndicate the chairman of the syndicate still considers them a rival um, so to appease the chairman Ikamoto assigns one of his subordinates named Otomo who's played by Takeshi Kitano to take Morassi's gang down a peg or two but uh, Morassi's gang don't take kindly to it and it escalates into a full-blown gang war nice um, so before I discuss Kunimura's pattern outrage it's probably worth talking about Kitano a little bit he's Probably best known to Western audiences for hosting the popular game show Takeshi's Castle. Um, But he's a very renowned director and actor too. Um, He's sort of like a Clint Eastwood figure in that he directs a lot of diverse movies, but it's he's mostly known for his work in one particular genre yeah. um while for eastwood that's westerns i'd say for katano it's crime thrillers like you know violent cop and hannaby and brother um they're the ones i've seen um they're great he's also made others that are very claimed like boiling point and sonatine um which i now am eager to watch mm. after yeah. watching outrage um people are probably known as the teacher in, in battle royale, battle royale as, well. as well yes yeah. um he's in the ghost in the shower remake as well that's another one yeah. um johnny monomic 
Johnny Monarch, yeah. There was, there was only two English language Big films. Big American yeah. movies. Brother is in English language. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah, but it was kind of a flop, even okay. though I really like it. Um, I read online that having made a few less successful, kind of more experimental movies back-to-back, Kitano was drawn to making Outrage because he, he wanted to make like a purely conventionally entertaining movie. Mm. And in my eyes, he succeeded... Um, it's essentially just scene for after scene of gangsters, all played by actors with great faces and incredible suits, having tense face-offs with each other, which often escalate into very sudden bloody violence. That is just incredibly well staged by Kitano. Um, and I say that because like the violence always feels realistic because there's not a lot of me- there's virtually no music in the movie or unnecessary cuts. Like everything is very like um, succinct, I yeah, suppose, yeah. and a minimalist. But um, it's also often staged in a way that somehow makes it visually very stylish um for instance there's a scene where a character is on the run from a rival gang and takes a train but a hitman for the gang finds the guy fleeing and sits down next to him holding a gun on the train like with a silencer but the hitman waits just a few seconds until the train goes through a tunnel and goes dark before killing the other man and the whole scene is one take and because the train's completely dark all you see from the killing comes from the light of the gun oh nice um stuff like that there's there's also another scene where katana's character sort of unemotionally shoots someone point blank who's um sprawled out on the ground in a room but the way katano is framed in the shot all we see is like a plume of gun smoke rise up and surround katano um also katano edits his own movies himself and outrage just has this great rhythm because like the way scenes are cut together and how each scene links they call each it beat takeshi yeah it's like beat takeshi is how he's um referred to as an actor mm. yeah um but um, yeah, it's it's just very crisply done. Like there's there's no filler in this. Like um, something is always happening, and everything is very important to the story. Mm. Um, but also, while Outrage is quite entertaining as a crime thriller, it's also a very critical, um, cynical, nihilistic movie. You basically realize over the course of the movie that the chairman of the syndicate is really only playing Kunimura's character Ikamoto against his former prison friend, so that they destroy themselves, mm. and he can install like a puppet leader in their place and gain more power. And um, it's worth noting as well that the the movie's kind of unique in that like it doesn't really have a lead character we're rooting for a little bit more than the rest. Like everyone in the movie is really unlikable <laughs> and is very quick to sell out their supposed allies and friends as soon as they see an opportunity to acquire more power. So the movie is essentially like a mix of all these different kind of complicated power plays between its ensemble cast, some of which are successful and some of which are not, which mm. is very gripping. And um, it all just builds this general idea that if there was ever like a code or honor to the Yakuza, um, those days have passed. Like it's all become about personal interest. Mm. At one point in the movie, um, there's a corrupt cop uh, who says to Katana's character Otomo, "The days are gone for all time Yakuza." And there's another scene where Otomo cuts off his finger as an act of penance, um, which is um, a famous Yakuza ritual. And he goes to present it to the chairman, and one of the chairman's men is like, "Your old-fashioned finger chopping is worthless." Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, "What am I going to do with a finger?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, he doesn't say that, but that's mm-hmm. the vibe. Um, yeah, and in terms of that kind of cutthroat world of the Yakuza depicted in Outrage, uh, Kunimura's character Ikamoto is important to that, as he's he's basically how we get our first glimpse of it. Like hearing the plot synopsis, you would think that the relationship between Ikamoto and um, Marase, like this rival gang member with whom he has a relationship, would be the crooks of the movie. You know, like that the conflict would be how can Ikamoto stay friends with Marase while also um, staying in good standing with the chairman. Mm. And at the beginning of the movie, like Ikamoto seems a bit reluctant to mess with Marase. Like Otomo offers to um, fire shots at Marase's office, and Ikamoto says back, But I'm a sworn brother because of this pact that they made in prison. Yeah. And then he tells him, like, Just open an office on Marase's turf. Um, but even that is a small enough act to kind of kickstart this gang war. And when Morassi becomes more of a problem to Ikimoto, Ikimoto's sworn brother stuff just goes out the window and spoilers, like he orders Onomo to kill him. And then to add insult to injury, he then banishes Onomo after he fulfills <laughs> the order, I guess, to cover his tracks, mm. um, which Onomo does not take well. No, um, and yeah, Kunimoto is very good in the movie. Um, 
in that when his character Ikimoto is around the chairman and his men, like people above him in the layer cake of crime, the actor projects this sort of awkward meekness where he's he's trying just a bit too hard to appease them. But when he the character is dealing with his own men, like uh, Tomo, or he's dealing with Morase, who is less powerful than him, he just gives off this sort of smug, condescending, like, you can't touch me kind of vibe. <laughs> and he's always, like, playing like, oh, oh, did I do that? Like, playing like a fool, but you know that, like, it's part of an act. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but eventually he does kind of find his position weakened, uh, partly because of his pension for screwing over people, but also because he, he develops a gambling addiction oh. after um, his men open a casino and <laughs> it kind of threatens business because no one really wants to gamble with him because yeah. he's a Yakuza leader. Um, and I won't say precisely what happens to him, but there is something Shakespearean to the way he is gonna, he gets his comeuppance for um, talking out the both sides of his mouth. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, good movie. Um and there's two sequels to it now, which I have to watch. <laughs> Called uh, and they have great titles: uh, Beyond Outrage and Outrage Coda. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we hit the wailing. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> um, yeah. After the arrival of a mysterious, nameless Japanese man, played by Kunimura, in a rural mountainous village in South Korea, a strange illness begins to spread. The end stage of which has the sufferer murder their family. After police officer Jonggu's Kwok Donwo. Uh, daughter falls ill he decides to track down the disease and stop it at its source but various other factions including a local shaman a catholic priest and a ghostly woman in white may be out to help or hinder Jonggu yeah this is one of the best horror movies of the 21st century I've Ever. seen it like three times yeah, now so good yeah um, I didn't rewatch really it but man it really sticks in your brain like glue Re- just a, such a rich soup it's so nourishing as a movie even if it's horribly nihilistic mm. um, it's got like possession there's an epidemic there's this uh, like uh, the epidemic itself is like a serial killer or also turn, a, turns its victims into serial a zombie killers. attack <laughs> zombies ghosts demons and they all just equally share that space and none of them ever give they all get their moment in the yeah you're never like song, oh this I is guess. jarring or yeah. oh, I wish there was more of this like mm. it's just like very again elegant you know yeah and is it one of these horror movies that like shows you how like Slow-moving can still be scary. Maybe even scarier than, like, fast-moving stuff. Yeah. Because there's a bit, the bit near the start where uh, Kunimura's Japanese man is moving towards a character who was hunting in the woods. Like, all you see are, like, he's half in shadow and he's wearing, like, a loincloth, basically, and his eyes are just too blazing cold. And, like, you feel the same way as the guy he's approaching. You just want to fall over the back of your chair and uh, scurry away on all fours backwards. And it's terrifying, but the thing that it ends in a joke. Yeah. Because it, it cuts to, like, it's it's being, the story's being recounted and the person's mm. like, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> like, the first, yeah. like, uh, yeah, the first 40 minutes of this movie are hilarious. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I really forget that every time I watch it. Yeah, the bit yeah. where the daughter catches them having sex in his car and then so she announces funny. herself by farting. Yes, yeah, <laughs> really, really good. Um, yeah, the, the, they're, they're kind of like, the, there's two reasons I really love this movie so much. You know, it has that Exorcist Rosemary's Baby quality in that, like, before it introduces kind of elements of the supernatural into its story. It just takes the time to establish its characters, the relationships, the environment, the texture of mm. life in the small South Korean village. So that when all that is threatened by supernatural forces, it feels massive. And, yeah. you're, and you really care more than you would have otherwise. Because um, it, would, it would always would have been bad if this happened. <laughs> but um, you just, you love this, um, you yeah, know, family unit. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I also really love that this movie has like you know a lot of interesting themes and subtexts that I feel like academic scholars would get a kick out of like you know distrust between um, Japan and South Korea but also faith and this notion mm. of whether you know seeing is believing because you know you have this stranger who's clearly made of flesh and bone he looks like a regular human yet 
gradually more and more evidence evidence suggests these seemingly supernatural events and killings in the town are linked to him and the movie is about this ordinary man being put in a position because of the threat to his family where he has to take a leap of faith you know and believe in something he can't understand but also there's the fact of like what if he's wrong yeah um what if he's just ruining the stranger's life (laughs) and and in doing so ignoring the real threat to his family Uh, all that stuff is just very interesting and intellectually stimulating but um it's not didactic at all like i i feel like uh where i directed na hong jin is always like how do we make this really entertaining and you know it's it's just very thrilling how like it moves from being almost this like true detective type mystery but except instead of matthew mcconaughey and woody harrelson it's a bunch of really foolish cops yeah um the bit that's really funny is um when the the woman shows up at the police station outside the window yeah in, in the darkness and they're all like ah, you go out to you go out to her. no no i don't want to do it uh, they're like so unheroic mm. um but then after that, you know, it turns into this demonic possession movie, then briefly a zombie movie, um, before culminating in this just incredibly tense and twisty final act. Um, it just accomplishes so much. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, the performances too are flawless. Yeah, they're yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, you know, the lead character plays such a good everyman. Like, child actress who um, is the daughter is incredible. Um, yeah. Don't know where they found her. <laughs> um, I, but I do think the movie is stolen by... Jun Kunimura as um, this named character credits both Japanese man and J- Japanese stranger. He's so captivating in this movie while playing this character who aside from his final scene in the film is completely impenetrable. Mm, yeah, That's the thing I, I can never get over because like anytime we see him doing something that could be considered weird or demonic early on it's pretty much being either being recounted by someone we're not 100% sure we can rely on or it could be a dream yeah. or it's um, something that characters later try to recontextualize you mm. know um, because the movie does throw at this idea at one point that maybe the stranger is not a demon but is in the village to stop another demon yeah, you know, or yeah, stop yeah. Uh, yeah that he's the real shaman yes exactly or, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're, you're never really sure what the character's deal is until the end and in Kunimura's big acting scenes in the movie where the stranger is um, you know interrogated by the lead cop where we get a glimpse of him on his own the stranger on his own the actor thanks to his just like natural gray face but also just he's like intense glare and just slightly off kind of facial takes and body language somehow manages to command the screen while also making sure his character remains a total enigma mm. um there's a few scenes where the lead character and a few of his colleagues go to visit the stranger in his house and the first time the stranger does not say anything and the second time he he talks a bit but gives kind of cryptic or clipped answers what did you come here to do to travel mm. um but even though the stranger barely says anything just kind of dominates those scenes because the audience is like the lead character like we're both looking into Kunimura's face and trying to figure him yeah, out the, yeah. the stranger out and he's doing real acting in those scenes because there's the moment where the lead character kills the stranger's dog as sort of as like you know yeah, this is going to happen to you yeah, like yeah, a warning yeah, yeah. and I rewound it multiple times to see how Kunimura plays the stranger's reaction to that and I think you can read into Kunimura's face like just like a hint of like anger and hate and sadness mm. which is appropriate for that scenario but it's but it's it's faint, you know, yeah. and he's still remaining completely still. He's not doing the outpouring of emotion you'd expect a normal person to release in that situation. And it's just one example of like the way Kunimura's performance just keeps the mystery up as to whether his character is human or a demon. But he, I think he threads that needle throughout the movie. And like another interesting part is when like the stranger he falls off the cliff um, yeah. and he cries in pain. And it's the first time we've seen him have what looks like an, a normal like human reaction to something and it's an emotional moment and the music swells and it happens just a little bit before it starts to be suggested that the stranger could be a demon hunter as opposed mm. to a demon but again who's to say like a demon can't feel pain you yeah know? like there's not yeah. an encyclopedia yeah. for yeah. this stuff and um i think that's the fascinating game the way i think is playing and i, I think kudumar's 
very pivotal to it Absolutely, succeeding, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, there is a good stretch of the film where we're not really sure if it's him spreading this disease. As He's only really a monstrous, monstrous figure, as he said, in dreams. Mm. And to an outsider's perspective, uh, like ours, it could just be the point of view suspicion of an insular South Korean community of not only an outsider, but an elderly Japanese man who could have conceivably been a fighting age in World War II and part of the occupation forces. You never know. Yeah, I, th- I think of it as like, it could be like Paul Dano and Prisoners, where we're just like the whole time like, oh, this guy needs to be stopped. And at yeah. the end of it, you're like, oh, like yeah. it could go that yeah, way. Yeah, and absolutely. You you know. And the film does eventually give a definite answer about its various kind of factions and individuals and their, you know, alliances or whatever towards the end. And it was so much crueler than I thought it was possible for a movie to be at the end. Um, But yeah, like like as I said at the start, and I think this is probably the best evidence for it, it's a testament to Kunimura's lack of ego and bravery as an actor that he takes such such a role and not only within his own country, but in one as in one with as notoriously bad relations as Korea has has with Japan. And then they had him back as like a jury member of the Busan International Film Festival. And he drew a lot of controversy by saying, I don't think our, the Japanese flag is appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I read that too on that, that blog. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And he was right to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you, you want to talk about Manhunt? Sure, yeah. After several high profile legal wins on behalf of Japanese pharmaceutical company Tenjin, Chinese lawyer Du Q played by Zhang Hanyu, is framed for murder by Tenjin CEO Yoshihiro Sakai, played by Jun Kunimura, to keep their illegal stimulant research under wraps. Aided by police officer Satoshi Yamura, played by Masaharu Fukuyama, vengeful horse girl Mayumi, played by Kiwei, and Yamura's klutzy assistant Rika, Q sets about proving his innocence and Tenjin's guilt. So just for a little bit of background on this, this is a very odd movie based on an old 1976 film called You Must Cross the River of Wrath. <laughs> which is maybe one of the best Absolutely. film titles I've ever heard. That's its English translation. It's uh, obviously something else in Japanese. Um, or I, I could have said the Japanese title, but I didn't want to end up tripping over my words. Didn't want that sentence to trip down the stairs like this one is. Um, Get on with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And that stars Ken Takakura, who was in Black Rain. Um, and it initially didn't do well in Japan, but eventually became the highest grossing Japanese movie ever made, thanks to Chinese and Soviet ticket sales. Which is very odd, hmm. um, and John Woo like attempts to adapt it in the kind of grand tradition of his heroic bloodshed movies that he made in like the eighties and nineties, but it, it lacks the kind of star power he used to command, as well as the kind of the really good kind of action he used to be capable of. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, Maybe it was just a budget thing. Who knows? Yeah, just it, it feels a little bit of a downer to end our mm. kind of more episode on Manhunt. Not because it's bad, yeah. but it, it's um. It's a step down from the four out of five to five out of five movies we've covered so far. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, there is something poetic about it because, like, one of Kunimura's uh, first roles was as a tea house gunman yeah. in uh, John Woo's masterpiece *Hard Boiled*. Um, and you know, twenty five years later, he gets this much more substantial role in another John Woo movie. But um, I think, in the same way as like *Outrage*, felt like Katano trying to return to his crime drama roots. Um, *Manhunt* feels like Woo trying to get back to his action thriller roots after a string of historical epics like stuff mm. like *Red Cliff*. Um, I wouldn't quite call this a return to form. Like, I did find it watchable. And, like, I must say, I threw this on quite late on one of those weeknights where you're tired, but you don't really want to go to bed yet. And mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I could just squeeze it in, you know. And I, I watched the whole thing. So I, I didn't fall asleep. It passed that test. Other yeah. movies have failed it. Fair enough. But, um, and, like, the action is great. Um, like, the fight that begins in a car being driven and then culminates on a cliffside surrounded by doves. Yeah. John Woo Tramer. Yeah. <laughs> um, or the jet ski chase. or And I think the highlight of the movie, the whole farmhouse siege sequence. John Woo shoots action like no one else in that like he does a lot of like exciting hyperkinetic editing but he also still manages to show what looks like the actor's doing very impressive stunt work yeah. and 
to also convey where everyone is in relation to to each other. Like the cunning isn't like annoying. Yeah, exactly. Somehow, yeah, yeah. and we'll do um, like odd stuff like handcuffing two of his actors together. Yeah, they're yeah. they're always, and like it's it's very behavioral. Yeah, the action scene. Yeah, he'll probably go on motorcycles and then put those motorcycles in a house <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, loves loves like what if the action sequence happened in a moving car? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, and they're always very clear and easy to follow, and more importantly, cool. Yeah. Um, that said, I, while balletic action sequences are always welcome, I do think they tend to work better if you care about the characters involved and the story. And to be honest, in the case of Manhood, I found everything around them a little dull. And it's a shame because I actually believe that the murder mystery slash pharma conspiracy plot could have been really engrossing if it was more of a whodunit, maybe, or mm. like, or like the insider, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, something like yeah. that, a bit more like darker. Um Yet I think Wu sort of suffocates the story by treating it as just more of a delivery system for set pieces. And yeah. none of the characters really pop aside from the main cop, but even that character feels like a lesser version of like Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive. Mm-hmm. And um I also thought like the banter and melodrama of this movie felt a bit lame and generic. Like so you mentioned this in some of your review, like some of the editing of the non action scenes is weird in this. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of like freeze frames. Like what's up with that? Yeah, it's strange. Especially the dance sequence at the start. Yes. Yeah. Um yeah, it feels Odd, like it, it, it has this. It's a very, like, it's a very silly film. I think with it, like a daytime TV aesthetic and a story that really kind of dips, if not dives, into soap opera plotting at times. And like, like you said, its action isn't at the quite at the level John Woo was directing in his prime, and it seems at odds with his intent to homage his deceased idol Ken Takakura, considering it seems to want to operate on B movie principles. Whereas I think Takakura always brought like a, a real gravitas. If, if you've if you've seen the like the Yakuza, which could be just straight up B movie trash, it's like maybe one of the best films of the seventies. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Robert Mitchum in there as well. Um, I started watching this and I I had to I got called out and I never finished it. But I got, I got, oh, like, Paul Schrader wrote that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Seeing Ken Takakura and Robert Mitchum on screen together screen together is like that other movie that Lee Marvin made with Toshiro Mifune, where they're both pilots. Island on the Pacific. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Just great to see East meets West. Incredible work. <laughs> well done, everyone. Um, yeah, and it's not that I consider these things like weaknesses. I wouldn't consider them strengths necessarily. I do think it makes for like a fun kind of silly time, but you really need to be in kind of the right mood, you know? It's a real sort of like have a few beers and on a Friday night yeah, with the lads yeah, kind yeah, of exactly, action yeah. movie. And that's what I've done. Like I've think, I think I've watched this movie three times now. And the last the first time was for a review for head stuff, but the other two times I'm like watch this <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah. like I'd give the action scenes like 4 out of 5 but I would also give everything else like 2 out of 5 yeah, so yeah, I, I, my letterbox was a 3 yeah um, I spit the difference Stephen Threesio <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and just on Kunamura like watching this movie I feel that like we was prioritizing action over everything mm-hmm. else and as such everything else suffers a little bit and you know I think Kunamura is pretty great casting as a shady pharmaceutical company president and his character Sakai has a, again like has a few little nice moments like at the beginning of the movie Sake's um, company's lawyer Q, who's the main character of the movie, um, is real king to America. And Sake comes over to him and says a little gravely and chillingly, like, please keep our secrets. And then goes, <laughs> and like, a little bit like, he's like, he's like a little bit like, I don't know, like he's pulling back a little bit from being full, like maniacal, yeah, but like, yeah. you're like, I, I get the vibe. Mm. Um, and I also think he brings a surprising amount of emotion I have to his little monologue in the climax. Spoilers, although this movie is very predictable, so it really, really doesn't matter. Mm. But um, you know, more villains in movies after being caught should say, I don't regret any of this. <laughs> <laughs> like, bastard to the end. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I thought that was an interesting line. Um, but he, like, he suffers a lot because this character is very one-note. And like 
he's just he's clearly a baddie from the beginning and any opportunity the movie has to flesh out his character beyond that to perhaps his relationship with his son who's next in line to take over from him and is involved in this conspiracy or through um, Sake's relationship with the two females he adopted as girls and trained to be assassins yeah <laughs> um, yeah. you just that's all just skimmed over and it feels like a waste yeah, and, yeah um, I think so too I am very excited for John Woo's next movie, Silent Night, uh, which is going to be in English. Oh, that should be fun. And yeah, centers yeah. on a grieving father enacting his long-awaited revenge against a ruthless gang on Christmas Eve. Isn't that completely without dialogue, though? I believe it is, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Silent so it, Night. It doesn't matter if it's with, with English or not. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I was, yeah. I was only just thinking because Joe Kinnaman's in it. Yeah, but, that's um, true. Yeah, yeah. But Silent Night, it's sound Christmas ancillary silent. That's yeah. so cool. Unreal. <laughs> it's going to be the best. Um, anything else about um, June Kunamara? Not necessarily about him, but watch Shin Godzilla. Maybe the best monster the movie thing. of the last usually, ten years. Usually, when I we cover character actor, when we when I finish doing all the prep and like watching all the movies, I'm a little bit like, okay, I've watched a bunch of their movies. I'm going to put them in a corner and mm. I, like I'll give it a few months before I watch something else they're in. Um, but this was such a fun episode to prep for. I want to watch more Kunimura movies now. And like I made a note, like Hideo Nakate, Mystery Mystery Thriller Chaos. Mm. Never even heard of it. <laughs> Sounds great. Probably impossible to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Uh, but also like two Godzilla movies, which uh, yeah. I'm sure are great. Like they just jumped to the top of my watch list. Um, so I'm a big fan. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm glad, glad you're a convert. Yeah. Yeah. Rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. If you have a friend who's reading the movies, why not recommend them our show? Email inotherfacepod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to us. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you love I Know The Face, please consider donating five year a month to us through Headstuff Plus where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. We have available now, including a few in our Leading Legend series focusing on A-listers like Brad Pitt, Jodie Foster, Denzel Washington, Kristen Stewart, and your work. People find more your work. You can find me at the Stuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. And at the blog Fortnite Frights where I talk about the most influential movie, um, influential horror movie uh, of the last hundred years, starting with 1920. Yeah, you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm either Steam Portsy or Portsfolio. You can also check me out at joe.e. See you there, Cinefiles. Bye-bye. As mentioned at the top of the episode, I got the opportunity to chat to director Sebastian Lelio about his new film The Wonder, which was released in Irish cinemas on November 2nd and will be getting a Netflix release on November 16th. The movie centres around an English nurse, played by Florence Pugh, who is sent to a rural village in 19th century post-famine Ireland and is assigned to observe a young girl who is said to have not eaten for months despite remaining healthy. Uh, I thought the movie was very good, so I was happy to interview Sebastian. Um, he spoke to me about what drew him to the project, the movies that influenced him while making The Wonder, and the film's terrific cast of actors. Uh, I hope you enjoy our chat. So I'm here with uh, Sebastian Lilio, um, the director of the new movie The Wonder, which is coming out in Irish cinemas 2nd of November before we're going to Netflix two weeks later. Before we begin, I just would like to talk about how you became involved in The Wonder, because um, on one level I think there are similarities to your other movies in that it's mainly about women, it's about faith, but it's also very different in that it's a bit more of a mystery, it's a period piece and set in this very particular part of the world, you know, 19th century Ireland. Um, can you talk about... You know, what excited you first about the project? Yeah, well, I, I read um, Emma Donoghue's novel and I really, um, well, I, I, I loved the, the story. Um, the two women at the centre, um, the nurse and the girl, um, the context, you know, the historical context where this was happening, the um, a traumatised community coming out of the, 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 the famine, the hunger and... Um, this girl that supposedly can live without eating, almost like if it, she was a, 
a collective creation uh, from the community uh, um, and then this uh, scientifically minded woman this uh, nightingale modern nurse that has to confront them um, I thought that that was um, that was really uh, interesting and then the relationship with, between the two women the, 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 the sorority that happens there the fact that they connect almost in a maternal way and they have to like save each other um, I thought that was an, an amazing trajectory um, to, to observe um, in a film and then at a more conceptual level um, the novel had already like a meta element because she is uh, Lieb is uh, an English nurse that is summoned by this group of men to watch uh, a girl, you know, the girl that is allegedly surviving without food. Um, so she was already the um, external watcher, right? And uh, and um, but um, and so so we, we 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 as viewers have the chance to see how their belief systems collide. So you have, in this case, um, you know, science versus religion, or reason versus magical thinking um, and I thought that was really like a rich territory to 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 explore in a film and as you said uh, it's, it's my kind of uh, my my cup of tea as you, as you as you would say so but I love the challenge of making a much more precise script because it has elements of suspense and mystery and 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 so you need a more more precision in the in the craft of the script writing and then uh, that is also required in the filmmaking is it requires a very precise filmmaking and i was really w willing to to you know to to grow and to try to try myself as a filmmaker in a more in a more in a more yeah you know again precise sort of uh, narrative and um, yeah, it's a, it is a very unique movie in terms of tone because I would I would classify it as a drama, but obviously there is a big mystery at the center of it that could be supernatural. Um, I think parts of the film flirt with horror a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, were there any movies in particular that influenced your approach to making the film when you were prepping it? No, I, I mean I think you're right. The, the film flirts with different with different genres. It is at times. Um, um, yeah, a mystery, a suspense, uh, maybe a psychological thriller. It's also a study of a character, of a woman again. Um, it has hints of horror. Maybe sometimes it could it could become a horror film. Uh, but these are all like visitations to those tonalities or colors. But it, but the film never completely commits to any of those. So it's. This idea of a genre uh, uh, um, that is in flux is really attractive, you know, to me. Um, so yeah, what, what, sorry. Just, was there any particular movie? Ah, the, yeah. Well, you know, every time I make a film, it's like um, it's not about your favorite films. It's about the pantheon of films that that start to be created so you can make the specific film you're making. And in this case, um, I did work very closely with Ari Wagner, the cinematographer, and we were, yeah, talking about different films for different reasons, you know, like uh, David Lean's Ryan's Daughter, mm. Daughters, um, The Landscape, 
the oppressive community, you know, even um, straw dogs uh, by pecking. But, you know, the, 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 the oppressiveness of... Uh, everyone knows each other. Everyone knows each other and, and it can become hell, uh, breaking the waves as well because of the energy and the vibe. Um, I was bringing a lot of, of the, you know, the, the meta-modernist gestures of the of the 60s mainly french and italian cinema of the 60s um you know um the opening titles of uh, contempt by Godard, for example um the also like the way in which characters look at the camera breaking the fourth wall in a few of bergman bergman films especially summer with monica um Yeah, it was sort of like a very eclectic pantheon. Um, uh, but I wouldn't say there is one or two films that were an absolute reference. We did talk a lot about Meek's Cut-Off, uh, Kelly, oh, Kelly, Kelly Reithardt film, which has a sort of like, also like a Spartan aesthetic, quite minimalistic. And I was very, very in love with the, the, the use of color there. Mm -hmm these uh, dresses against the landscape that was a big inspiration for the costumes and also like women you know at the center solving yeah. the problem that men gets everyone into I can definitely see the comparisons there yeah 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 um, I imagine as someone from Chile you wouldn't have had a lot of knowledge about um, the famine, you know, and Irish history before you read the book. And obviously you worked on the screenplay and it's based off this book by Emma Donoghue. So you have that um, source material as a reference point, but did you have to do a lot of research about the period just to, you know, help you realize your kind of own cinematic vision? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I was very lucky to inherit um, the novel, the rich novel that Emma wrote uh, that was the result of a long research that mm. she did. I mean, she's of course Irish and uh, so I had notions and I knew about the famine and, 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 and that period in, in, in history but I wasn't at all an expert. I'm still not an expert. I, I became an, an expert in the wonder. That, 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 that's <laughs> For sure, but uh, but yeah, it's unavoidable to that you know that you have to research and in the process of making the film that happens naturally, you know, costume design, um, uh, production design, they all bring books, um, photographies, paintings, and you start to to learn more and more um, in the process of ma of making the film. So yeah, it was. Um, And then you have to find the balance, and this is what, what the challenge was, uh, between historical accuracy and some levels of artistic license or freedom in order for the film to work, you know, because the film is not the truth. The film is artifice, and it has to, it has to be compelling, and it has to work with its own rules. and. That was a that was that was a fascinating challenge to, to 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 face, especially for someone coming from Chile. You know, English is not my language. I'm clearly not Irish. So, uh, very very a big responsibility and a delicate subject, um, and uh, yeah, an honor really to have the chance to have explored this 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 story. 
and um what i what i really like about the movie is that i its story is extremely linked to the time period and place in which it's set but um i also think there are so many parallels to issues happening today around the world like 150 years later um reading the book of the wonder and you know working on the screenplay was there any particular element to the story that struck you as feeling um very contemporary many of them i mean in the wonder everything is a narrative war there is a young female body in dispute by social forces many I mean, by men that are controlling the community, that are controlling the narrative, um, and they are using the the case of the girl for somehow their benefit, so they can have either more power or consolidate their power or not losing their power, whatever. And the only casualty there is the girl herself. The only th- thing that doesn't matter is the girl's pain, and that's really infuriating, you know. And uh, and the fact that many of the members of this community are in the position of they think they have found the truth, mm. you know, because of what they believe in, um, and they are willing to deform reality so it matches their vision. And this is this is the the, the line that has to be drawn, and are even willing to impose that upon others, you know, and that's really like unacceptable I think um, and then um, Lieb as a scientifically minded woman um, colliding with that you know and science as a great human con- conquest uh, holds doubt in its heart so it is not rigid it is in flu- flux it is at its glory when it's corrected so it's the difference between having found the truth and operating from that position in the world and being in flux. Um, And that is very today. That collision, that conflict between rigid positions and people that are willing to change, evolve, adapt, try to learn to live together, find ways, uh, that tension felt very contemporary. I agree. And um, yeah, obviously, the movie has an incredible cast. You know, Florence Pugh is um, really gives a really emotional and powerful performance. And then there's also a lot of great Irish actors like Kieran Hines and David Wilmot and Eve Algar. But um, I want to talk about um, Elaine Cassidy and her daughter, Keela Lord Cassidy, uh, who play mother and daughter in the movie. And a lot of the movie is really on Keela, who's incredible. But um, I guess, given that the story goes to some very dark places, did it help having Elaine there on the set with Keela, you know, when you're directing? I mean, we, you know, we, we found Florence and, and I mean, Florence founded us, I don't know, but uh, she accepted. Yeah. And I was like, okay, we have, we have a film because of her great range and magnetism and integrity. It's going to be great. Uh, so I was very, very, very grateful. But then we needed to find the young girl. And, and it's really a duel between the two. So it needed to be someone that could cope with Florence um, and I saw hundreds of tapes and then we saw Kila's and, and I was really speechless uh, her level of commitment was uh, extraordinary for an 11 years old girl and also the understanding of the, of the, of the character was quite was very deep uh, I, was, I was really I was really impressed and then I, I, I realized that she's, she, she's the daughter of Elaine Cassidy and it was like my immediate reaction was let's invite Elaine to play the mother 
and and she was uh, both of them were very happy to to act together and uh, it generated a virt virtuous circle because Kila's mother was always there um, protecting Kila uh, and protecting Anna as a, as a, in the fiction mm -hmm. um, and when she was performing her father who is also a um, theater man a uh, person of theater if you know what I'm trying to yeah. say um, was also there in the set so she was very protected mm -hmm. and that really created a, a safe atmosphere and and uh, And they were having, they were really enjoying it. I think they are a family of actors, and Kila is a natural, but also she inherited this knowledge, uh, this uh, craft. Um, so yeah, and also it was really, I, I took it as a privilege to have the chance to film a mother and a daughter uh, performing in such a strong story, and especially in, 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 in this very specific window in, in, in a girl's life, you know, because it probably lasts six months, seven months before she would start to tur turn into a young adolescent. So it's that precise window. So it, it was really like, it, it was a gift. Mm. Before we wrap up, um, I wanted to ask you if there were any projects you're working on now that you can talk about, because I just, I read reports from a few years ago that you were set to direct a Bride of Frankenstein type movie with uh, Scarlett Johansson. And I was just curious, is, is that still happening or is there other projects on the horizon? Well, I mean, um, there are projects under development and uh, I have no idea which one is the one that will happen next. Um, so it would be a bit irresponsible for me to talk more, uh, but but uh, all I can say is that uh, yeah, I've been I'm, I'm working for you guys, <laughs> and uh, I hope to be shooting next year one of the three films I'm I'm preparing since a while now. Great. Mm. Great. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for speaking to me, and uh, congratulations again on the wonder. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.